Hello and welcome to the e-commerce playbook podcast. I am your temporary takeover interim host, Aaron Orndorff, VP of Marketing at Common Thread Collective. But don't worry, your usual suspect and suspects are all here. Andrew Ferris, the currently man at leisure. I'm not sure what your Twitter buyer says these days. Say hello to the folks who might be missing you. <laughs> hello. I. I actually considered changing my Twitter bio to just say unemployed, and that was going to be the only thing it was going to say. But yeah, I think it says I like digital marketing, which is about just as big. Just busy baiting those recruiters. We have also got Comic Thread <laughs> Collective's Chief Operating Officer, Orchid Bertelstein. Say hello. Hi, it's Orchid Bertelstein, and also AO. I think maybe you need to dial up um, the emotion. I don't think you're excited enough for this episode. <laughs> Bertelstein. He hasn't gotten to me yet. Bertelstein. Bertelstein. We're going to edit that out. Don't worry about it. Oh, no. That's not getting edited out. That's Last but not least, keeping this train rolling, our fearless leader, managing partner, CEO, Taylor Holiday. Please don't disappoint me. I want to hear it. I want to hear that. Say it. What? What am I supposed to say? What up? Oh, uh, yeah, right. What up, Aaron? What up? It's good to see you all. Well, we are all here for a very special episode of the e-commerce playbook podcast. We are going to be diving into what was once uh, a, I don't want to say theoretical, but, but a business model idea, anti-fragile e-commerce that if you've spent any time following the, the CTC or 4x400 cadre of characters, you've probably seen us talk about at one point or another. And what we want to do today is load you up with as many practical action-packed tactics as we possibly can to bring that idea to life. Let's get going. All right, as far as I know, this is not an original term in and of itself, but this idea of anti-fragile e-commerce is an idea, an application that Taylor, you first started talking about, gosh, I wanna say about a year and a half ago. For anybody that isn't familiar with anti-fragile e-commerce. We'll jump into the metrics in just a second, but what is this about and why, why is this something you keep coming back to? Yeah, it was born in the midst of COVID the first time when I was, I started reading Nassim Taleb's Black Swan. It felt appropriate for the experience we were having as humans. And what I started noticing around me was that there were a lot of e-commerce businesses that when things all of a sudden ramped up and became like demand went through the roof, people weren't able to meet it their businesses weren't flexible enough to actually take advantage of the moment. And then vice versa, the following year, when we hit this sort of opposite issue related to iOS and all of a sudden the demand engine sort of got stuttered a little, the similar problem existed, that there was sort of overcommitted inventory and overcommitted dollars that forced people into behavior that was detrimental to the business. And it felt like that one of the core risks to, that I was seeing in the industry was just the lack of agility that existed in the constructs of the underlying business principles that were these businesses were operating on. And so I sort of tried to think about, well, what would be the business that could, in true Nassim Taleb fashion, thrive in the midst of chaos, be able to not just resist pressure, but become stronger when the world around you is going uh, in a different direction than anticipated. And so that was... Uh, sort of what I started thinking about as I, as I came up with the premise. That history of it's interesting because I think it really reached a fever pitch post iOS 14.5 uh, and the diminishing efficiency on what was really the engine, the demand engine, the sales engine for most D2C e-commerce brands. One of the ways I've heard you say it is you might be tempted to ask, how do we fix it? Referring particularly to Facebook. But the question you should be asking is what if we can't? fix it? How do you build a business that succeeds even if Facebook fails? And the way you've broken this out before is seven characteristics, seven metrics that make an e-commerce business anti-fragile. I'm just going to list them off. For anybody who's listening or watching us, there's a link in the show notes or in the YouTube uh, description to full article on this. So if we ever overload you, jump over there. You can look at all of the metrics themselves. There's a scorecard there. And there's actually some additional tactics that we won't have time to get into today. But those seven characteristics are production lead times, supplier payment terms, OPEX, operating expenses, percentage of revenue, contribution margin, or also gross profit margin, organic versus paid traffic mix, 60-day customer lifetime value, 60-day LTV, and 
number of distribution channels. So number one is production lead times. And I want to kick things off with own parts of your supply chain. For instance, final assembly. That's going to be tactic number one. Taylor, have at it. So if you think about the gold standard of reducing your production lead time, it's on-demand manufacturing. It's the ability to make something once someone has ordered it and instantly on location. That's sort of the uh, gold standard of it. And likely that's not possible for the entirety of your supply chain. There's going to be some part of the product, but there is likely portions of it. I'll give you two examples. One, when we were at Kalo, we sold custom laser engraved rings. Okay, well, the rings themselves weren't on-demand produced. Those would be sitting in our inventory and warehouse and subject to our normal production lead times. But the actual laser engraving we built in-house. We bought the laser engraving machines, looked at the cost, amortized them over the demand expectations, and it made sense to be able to laser engrave them instantly on-site so that that production was happening right when a customer ordered. A second example is for modern fuel, the pens come in component parts. So there's sort of a casing and then there's the interior of the pen. And that assembly, we actually do on location in Havelock in our 3PL. So we have our people receive the individual components and rather than assemble them in where they're, where they're produced, we actually receive them, which shortens the timeline to actually receiving the goods and then can assemble them on site in a more on-demand fashion. And so that sort of allows us to have to take a smaller window as it relates to inventory. Yeah, and the, the thing about both of those examples and what I'll say about the, the laser thing in particular is that like custom engraving is like the worst thing for a 3PL. It really works against the business model, which the three, for a 3PL, the whole model is like, how much stuff can you do repeated at scale basically? So like adding customization is just miserable. And so you end up getting often, in my experience, and I don't know, I haven't shopped every 3PL here, but like in my experience, 3PLs will charge you an arm and a leg for that. And so it's just a simple way to not only allow you some more control and freedom, but reduce your costs on that. And there's a similar thing going on with that modern fuel thing where we just kind of looked at it and said like, you know, we can do this. This doesn't take the same special skills as the engineering that makes the pen. So why don't we actually just do this, finish it ourselves? And that's going to reduce our labor costs against it and also allow us to have a little more freedom in terms of timelines and all that kind of stuff. So, but I think the laser one actually applies to a lot of people. There's a lot of people doing customization. And so, yeah, I think just like looking at where you can do that is important. Speaking of reduce, good word. Number two, reduce the number of SKUs you carry. Orchid. What you're trying to do is help your consumers prevent choice paralysis. Sometimes when you have too much SKU, SKUs, people get overwhelmed. I mean, think about picking up a birthday card. When you have 20 or 30 different options, you might say, all right, well, none of these are perfect, so maybe I don't want to make the decision right now. But if you give five choices, you sit, it's almost like the illusion of choice where people think that they were able to pick something out that spoke specifically to their needs and that they had enough variety that they like chose the right one, but not too many to prevent them from actually purchasing it. And when you have too many SKUs, I mean, not all of them are turning over or have the velocity as, you know, your best selling ones. So what you could do is retire some of them, put them on promo, put them on discount, but don't take it off of your site to show it as sold out because that does search with or help with organic search optimization. Number three, under production lead times, major on inventory turnover and negotiate lower MOQs particularly when you're focusing on inventory turnover. Andrew. Well, the second part first. So negotiate lower MOQs just means, you know, minimum order quantities. I think most people will know that, but just in case you don't, uh, minimum order quantities, trying to get those lower so that you have, so that your manufacturer, um, again, manufacturers make their money by working at scale. That's where all the savings are. And so the temptation in a lot of cases is to go and try and buy more product because you see that beautiful little discount on that term sheet from them, that pricing sheet where you say, oh my gosh, it's going to cost me $2 versus $2.20 or whatever if I per unit to to place this order. So I should go buy more so I can get the savings and get the $2. It actually might be more in your best interest to negotiate a lower MOQ so that there's actually a $2.40 option where you order even less of the thing that you want. Because even though that's going to eat into your margin, it's also potentially going to take up less cash to place the order. And that's the game you're constantly playing, which is margin versus cash. And so if so in the ideal world, what you want is to be able to buy as few things as possible within the within your demand forecasting for as low of a price as possible. And those two work against each other. And so understanding how that relationship works is really kind of what we're talking about here and working with manufacturers who will help you out and get there. Some of that actually is, some of that negotiation in my experience has just been um, 
helping manufacturers actually get some vision for your growth in your business and becoming a real partner in it with you. So that if you're trying out a new SKU for some, or something like that, you, you can go to them and say like, we only want to make a hundred of these or a thousand of these or whatever it is, whatever a low amount is for your business, depending on what you're selling, right? Can you help us get there? We know that sucks for you, but if you can help us do that, well, then we can test it and maybe we can you know, do a larger order and, and all that kind of stuff. If you can show that you're a growing business and are potentially worth a lot of money to them in time, um, they'll work with you on stuff like that, even if it's not their ideal on day one, just like it's not your ideal there. They, they can see that vision too. So finding manufacturers who see the vision for your business and can partner can be really, really good. And then from there, what you're looking at is just like being careful about your inventory turnover itself. So going like, okay, what do I have too much of? What do I have too little of? And then sort of on the sales side, matching that production and manufacturing approach with what products you're moving to the front and top of your website and what you're discounting and and you know what you're sending email promos around or what you're doing as a gift with purchase and all those things because you're trying to move that inventory. So playing that game back and forth is challenging. It will always be challenging. It's a hard problem to solve, but especially in the early days when forecasting is very difficult, but but it's a it's a crucial thing and and having a manufacturing partner with whom you can have some partnership like that goes, I think, a long, long way. I'm willing to pay more per SKU early on a low MOQ if it allows me to test more stuff. Anti-fragile metric number two. Hold on. I want to I want to add to that. I mean, one point when it comes to manufacturing and when you're trying to build a strategic partnership where you're actually asking them to maybe create a new capability or do something that they haven't done before is to get your lawyer in place. <laughs> because let's say you come up with a proprietary manufacturing method, you know, you need to make sure that you have it in the contract terms that they are only going to manufacture that for you, that they're not going to go ahead and take that and own the IP all of a sudden and the process and sell it to your competitors. I did not think about that. And that's orchid bringing the fire right away. That's really smart. Anti-fragile metric number two, supplier payment terms. First tactic here is to research the supplier landscape with this idea that optionality is leverage. Orchid. All about leverage. It's all about being able to make deals and negotiate. So when you are locked into a supplier, I mean, it's a little different if you're producing, you know, something that only few manufacturers can produce in the world because you have no leverage effectively. Maybe they're the only person who manufactures it, but that's usually not the case um, unless you're in very, very high tech. So what you would want to do is just understand what the competition is out there, but you would probably want to accept multiple bids and then start to play them off of each other a little bit. And then it's all about, because the stronger your BATNA, which is an acronym for best alternative to negotiated agreement, the stronger your BATNA, the more leverage you have. And so you can usually negotiate better rates. The thing, the thing about that, sorry, is that it's time intensive and that's why people don't yeah, do it. It is. is that like, it requires making another phone call and doing all that stuff. But like, I, I, I talked to somebody the, just the other day who had a down year this last year, but still was solidly profitable, cash was healthy, et cetera. And the entire reason why is because they had spent the better part of a year just dialing in this side of their business. They had better, they had, they're sitting on good margins all the time. And so like they could sustain, it's exactly the principle we're talking about. Even if it didn't make their business better this last year, they were not fragile. They were certainly moving towards anti-fragile because they had done this exact work to make it so that like this core part of their business was sustainable because they had shopped manufacturer after manufacturer until they found a great partner, got their cogs where they wanted it to, played with all of these different things. And it was really, really, really worth it to them when things got difficult. Next one is pursue other financing options. So for example, inventory-based lending from a bank, other lines of credit. So this is under supplier payment terms, but here we're talking about other financing options. Andrew, I think this came from you. Yeah, the, the thing that occurs to me here is that I think a lot of people in the e-commerce space consider kind of two financing options for their inventory. Number one is, is payment terms from a supplier. And then number two is something like Settle, where it's really easy to get, you know, one per, you're paying 1% per month, basically, and Settle will kind of push out your your payments and and that's that, which is functionally right at 12% APR. So the so those are not actually the only options. And it's just important to remember that like so payment terms with a supplier are great, but what they are is a loan. And and so it's just it's just helpful to remember the same principle of optionality, which is like if you can get cheaper money somewhere, it actually might be not only cheaper money, but more flexible money in the sense of like maybe you can pay up front with a supplier and they're really stoked on that. And so they're gonna give you a discount on the product. And if you can get Prime plus one, prime plus one and a half from a bank, 
then that's a better price of uh, cost of money than than getting the, the supplier uh, payment terms. And so that because it's just I think it's just helpful to remember that payment terms from a supplier are a loan in a lot of cases, unless as Orchid just pointed out that you actually have leveraged them so much by shopping, um, shopping a bunch of uh, a bunch of suppliers that like now they're just like falling all over, all over themselves to give you the best deal possible. So if you can combine these two things, you can put yourself in a really good position. If there's another thing where it's a lot of phone calls, like I, I have never actually gotten this loan myself, but I've talked to bankers who have done it. I've talked to brands who have done it. And they all said the same thing, which is like different banks have different appetites for how much money they want to lo loan you and different size loans and you know risk factors all those kinds of things but one thing people will do is use your inventory as collateral and they'll and, and or banks will do this they'll use your inventory as collateral they'll, they'll lend you based on that and you can get like i mean like loans for like a third of the price of what settle would give you or something and you know and then stack that up against your payment terms as well so it's really about the cost of cash the cost of money they're all loans just get the best one third Pre-sell your product, especially new ones. Uh, this came over from you, Taylor. Yeah, I mean, uh, the dream scenario is like the inverted cash conversion cycle, right? It's where the money shows up before you sell the product or before you have to pay the manufacturer. And so one way to do that is to pre-sell the product. And one of my favorite examples of this is the crew over at Taylor Stitch, an awesome apparel brand. They have a section of their website that they call the workshop. And what I love about their premise is they don't do this for every product because they can estimate the demand on their core SKUs pretty well. You don't really need to play this game necessarily with those, but for new products in particular, where you are hypothesizing at the demand that you're going to experience for the SKU, this is really helpful. It helps you to understand and even use, as to Andrew's point earlier, leverage with your manufacturer about the demand for the SKU based on what you've already done for pricing and other things. And so if you can, anytime you can realize the cash for the product before you have to pay for it, you're going to be in great shape. So this is uh, always a, a good opportunity that I think in the last year, customers have become more familiar with the idea. Like, a lot of us bought couches and furniture that we're not receiving for many years. Tesla is shipping products like a year after you buy them, right? Like there, there's a lot of sort of like in the world where Amazon's speeding everything up, there's also this premise that sometimes things get backed up and consumers are sort of showing an appetite to be willing to pay for something of quality and substance and understand that it may be a while to receive it. Just anecdotally, I experienced this post-Christmas where two of the gifts, one was a computer from Best Buy, another was a new set of pots and pans. Uh, both were so delayed that the orders were eventually canceled. And my response as a consumer was, no, don't do that. Just make me wait. I don't want to have to go out and do another chore. Just, just make me wait. So this is a good illustrate the sort of new normals expectations. When are you getting your cyber truck? Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I have, I have no cyber truck on the way. My Prius, I drive like seven minutes a week. It's like, I'm just stuck in this cave org. I don't go big. <laughs> Anti-fragile metric three, OPEX percentage of revenue. Tactic number one is to understand what's a good financial model. Andrew. So this has been a really helpful, this came from Taylor originally, or Taylor got it from somebody or something like that, but it's really stuck with me, which is this notion of four quarter accounting. And it's, it's very simple, which is the idea that your entire, all of the money in your business, the financial model of your business can break down in an e-commerce business or um, in an ideal, it would break down into four quarters, right? It would be cost of revenue, which is essentially all of your, everything it takes to get it to the customer. 25% of your money goes there. And then OPEX would be 25% of your money there. And then advertising would be 25% uh, of your money there. And that leaves only one more bucket left, which is profit. And so that notion I think is really helpful. Look, realistically, your business probably has something about it that is going to lend better towards one of those being towards 30% and one of them being towards 20%. That's, that's how most of them work. This is a heuristic. It's not going to actually work exactly like that. But having something like that in your head to be aiming at, at every part of it, including your OPEX. And I think that's a really the kind of important point under this metric is that like to give you some sense of where your OPEX is healthy and where it's not, I think is, is really helpful. So, so thinking in terms of those things, this is kind of a broad principle here, but thinking in terms of those things can be really good. It's very possible that you have a business that requires less in advertising, but more in OPEX or the, or, or the, or vice versa, but, and, and that's fine. But just having some kind of a basic few buckets to put your business into like that and, and to be aiming at, I think really helps sort of define some problems. It always surprises me. We've done two really unexciting pieces uh, on the Common Thread Collective blog. One was about accounting resources for e-commerce in particular by Taylor. And the other one was on unit economics. Uh, 
And the lift involved in both of those was, was pretty high on, on mine because I'm, I'm not the most financially savvy person in the world. But I think the gift of that was I've gotten, I've never gotten a response in my DMs or when we send it out via email every time we update it with people legitimately saying thank you because there's just this, there's a bereftness and no one really wants to talk about financial literacy in a lot of these places, um, especially the larger you get. I think it becomes a source even of like embarrassment. So I'm really, I'm glad we're bringing that to the front. And inside of this one too, is like a very important question that every founder I know is asking, which is how much am I paying myself? Is it an appropriate amount? And so when you think about what's good, it's just, we don't know. And, and people are eager to do the right thing. Is my rent appropriate for my revenue? Is like, am I paying more in software fees than everybody else? Like you just are sort of alone in this one. And so the question of what's good is contextually why you know, conversations like this one and, you know, just communities of entrepreneurs sharing this kind of information is so helpful because you just don't know. Second tactic is to get clear on people costs and metrics, things like time to hire, turnover, uh, turnover, recruiting fees, Orchid, I think this came from you. Well, the great resignation is hitting everybody. <laughs> we'll continue to as we go into year three of the pandemic. When we look at metrics like time to hire, turnover, recruiting fees, I mean, a lot of the questions you're trying to answer is how quickly can I get the right person in the right seat, making the most impact possible at what time, right? That, that's it. And, and what we want to do is that we have so many talented candidates out there, but, but the challenge is that when you're a large organization, there are very clearly defined roles. And so someone is, I mean, if you take a cynical view of it, you're effectively a cog, right? You have a specific series of tasks that you're asked to do. You can be plugged into that. You can be dropped in. There's all these resources and processes, and you're very clear of what you need. That's not true for smaller companies, for startups, for entrepreneurs, because day to day, everything looks a little different. And so what you're hiring for then is not an exact set of skills or certifications. What you end up hiring for is aptitude, aptitude, curiosity, you know, the ability to be proactive and to see around corners, to run towards the fire. And that ends up being a little more difficult to hire for because it's not just us posting a job listing, having someone read it and think, yes, that is exactly what I can do because highly curious people, they can do anything. So what you end up doing in this time of time to hire ends up being much longer because you're having these one-to-one -one conversations with people to understand how they derive value out of their work and what kind of impact they want to make. Because I think in absence of value and mission and impact, people default to salary. Well, salary is finite, right? And especially as everything is turning into tech, the reality is that, you know, agencies and, you know, smaller companies aren't just raising, you know, $60 million in a series A. So this, the great resignation is absolutely causing this. I think the continued like, you know, technology focus of every single company is also coming into this. And the reality too, is that there are a lot of jobs that we're going to be hiring for in the next few years that don't even exist today. So yeah, so this is hard. <laughs> this is my TLDR. And, and this is, I mean, we're in a human service business. So this is something we have to think about all the time, but I've, I've, Coining this new term, well, I'm going to debut it right now, called directionally deployed cost. Okay. So the idea is that on your PL, employee costs are fixed as if they like are maximized in value. But the reality is each person spends a myriad of time doing things that you don't want them to do. And one of them is solving for turnover. So, like in our business, the amount of time spent hiring is a giant suck out of the system from leaders, from myself, from you, Aaron, you're experiencing it right now. And it's not actually the thing I want to pay you to do. So if I were to actually look at your PL, I would say that there's cost waste in the thing that we had to solve for in the absence of this time, right? So there's just trying to understand the actual value of your people and the, in the, then what that starts to highlight is the cost that gets created from a people turnover, especially unplanned people turnover is really, really hard for organizations. Third tip here, tie your agency fees to marginal outcomes. <laughs> Back over to you. We did this analysis last year where we looked at our fees as a percentage of our clients' revenue. Because what I wanted to understand was how do I protect their p and I'm interested in helping my clients produce profit. Relationships break under the following scenario. There's a month where spend goes up 
efficiency goes down, I'm getting paid on the basis of spend, and all of a sudden their margin is reduced and my earning went up. That is a clients, there's nothing they hate more than writing you a bigger check to make them less money. It is the ultimate friction point in a relationship. So the question is like, how do you solve for it? Well, the, you solve for it by trying to understand what percentage of your PL am I trying to be and where, how do I obligate myself to that ratio in a way that ensures that I'm not causing margin pressure for you by being a disproportionate part of your PL. And so just getting it, that requires a level of intimacy and deal making and slows down that that's, that's not simple. Uh, and we're not there with every partner, but the ones that we are, I found that we're pulling on the same end of the rope. And I've heard clients use the phrase like, hey, I feel like we're on the same team. And I think that's ultimately what you're after in these kinds of relationships. Anti-fragile metric four, contribution, margin, gross, profit, margin. I'm going to throw right back over to you again, Taylor, with our first tactic. Don't increase AOV. Move customers up one bucket. What does that mean? Yeah, this is good because I tried to fight the whole internet yesterday talking about AOV as a I was in the ring with you, man. I, I know exactly what you were saying. I know it looks weird when we get on the same page because it's like, you know, Taylor and Andrew, whatever. But like, I, I, I it's, it's yeah. totally clear what you were saying. There's two main points. It's that just because your AOV goes up doesn't mean your margin goes up. Like Black Friday is just, like, this is so obvious. This is the point that was killing me in that conversation. Like, it's so obvious. I don't understand why that's not more obvious to people. I mean, Black Friday is a perfect example, right? You run a sale, AOV goes up and your margin goes down. That's not a better outcome for you as a business owner. So if you think about what average is generally, it's the total uh, value of all of your orders divided by the number of orders. It doesn't actually represent a purchase type that is happening, or it might not represent a purchase type that is happening. The classic example is Kalo. People bought one ring for $20 or two rings for $40. The AOV was 30 bucks. There are no actual orders that occur that were $30. It's not actually a purchase type. So if you set the free shipping threshold at $31, thinking you're going to move the AOV up, you're actually more likely to move the AOV up, putting the free shipping threshold at $21. Because what you're trying to do is move your modal order up, right? You're trying to take the most common purchase, which is what mode is. It's the order that occurs most frequently and get those people to move themselves up what you referred to as a bucket, which is just a reference to a histogram, which is a statistical sort of vi data visualization that just shows orders by groups. So like how many orders occur between zero and $10 and 10 and $20 and 20 and $30, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll get sort of a bar graph looking thing called a histogram. And they define those ranges as buckets. So what you want to find is your modal bucket, the area where orders occur most often, and you want to try and move people up a bucket. That's the idea with trying to improve your AOV. Now that's assuming again, that the movement is an increase in marginal value, which is ultimately the thing that you should really be in pursuit of. AOV can a metric that is deceptive in its value. And that's my problem with it too, is it uses the word value when it's really a measure of revenue, not value. And so I think it just, it can deceive us into thinking it's doing something that it might not be. It can be, but it might not always be. It's amazing that you weren't able to capture all that nuance on Twitter in your singular tweet. And I saw it go out. And I texted you immediately and I was like, what did you do? <laughs> That's the thing. Everybody loves to like say it depends. Like nuance, Twitter's not for nuance. It's literally constrained in the amount of characters we have. Like save your nuance for the podcast. I'm just trying to, you know, to rile up Nate. Tactic two. Tactic two. Price test. Oh, translation here. Subtext. Not so subtle subtext. Raise your prices now. Andrew. This is actually a great piggyback to what you just said, Taylor, because the first thing I'll, I would say here is like, raise your prices, right? Because what does raising your prices do? If you do literally nothing else, it creates margin. And so that's what's valuable about it. I don't actually care about the AOV at the end of it. What I care about is that there's more margin on every purchase that I make. And so, so let me just say, raise your prices as a first step. I say that in part because, because I mean, people kind of know this, but I, I have just watched entrepreneurs pick a price for totally arbitrary reasons for their product. They really have done no research about like anything related to it. And then the price becomes absolutely holy in the business. Like it, and people feel deep fear about raising their price after doing it. Like you just watch the finger quivering as they go to press the button to, to raise the price up. And I think it's because people are in their own businesses 
and they think about their own businesses all the time. And therefore, when they raise the price, they just expect this massive consumer backlash of people who are going to be like, oh my gosh, you selfish monster, you would take two more dollars for your product. I can't believe it. And here's the thing, raising your price, I have never once seen it create any real customer backlash, like literally never, like, you know, one or two emails. And what I always do is just tell the customer service team, give them the old price. It's fine. If they email and they say like this, then just say, oh, we saw it. You saw it three days ago as a different price. No problem. Here's, here's the old price. Move along and everybody's happy and it's fine. Now, that said, it's possible. So that's the first thing, right? But that said, it's possible that raising your price, if there is significant price elasticity on your product, what that will immediately do is tank your conversion rate in a way that is at, at the same level or more than, your, than the AOV increase that you just got from that, than the revenue increase. And therefore, every click becomes less valuable to you in the sense that Taylor just meant it, which is like, now you're actually making less money total because less of your traffic is creating value for you because your AOV went up and your, and your conversion rate went down. And therefore, it's possible that raising the price is a bad idea in your business. And so you should test it and you, you should actually play with it because it's also possible that like you lower your price by $5 and you get, and you get 50x more you know, purchases or whatever. It turns out there was, there was price elasticity and you were already a victim of it and you didn't know it. But people just, people just don't. People just don't know to do that. And there you go. So I'll shout out to some folks that we've used who are building up a business called Intelligems. They've been awesome partners and helpful people at 4x400. And so, so yeah, go go talk to them if you want to go try and do this. They're doing it as well as anybody I can see. But I, I just think that's a big deal. And it's, and it's something you can do right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I'm hearing too is that price sensitivity is often perceived rather than real, right? And I think what matters Absolutely. too is depending on how you've trained your consumers, because you see the, I mean, JCPenney was famous for this years ago when they tried to do a rebrand. And by years ago, I mean like 2010, right? And they said, hey, instead of, you know, giving y'all promos and discounts all the time, we're going to move to everyday low prices. But they had trained their consumers over decades to say, all right, well, I'm not going to buy anything unless it's 20% off. And so like, that's what you're trying to play with too, is that, all right, like, are you trying to wean your um, existing customers off of promos? It's really hard to do. Gucci tried to do that over the course of years by just not doing, you know, sales anymore, because you will have a cohort of consumers who will wait until the sale in order to buy the thing. And so, you know, it again, depends on your product category. So yeah, and, and just one um, anecdote too, I had got an email from Pros, a hair care brand, probably before the holidays. And it was a great transparent email that said, hey, you're going to see us raising our prices at the beginning of the year because of supply chain, cost of goods rising, and we want to maintain the same level of quality of product that we've been providing to you. So as of January 15th, we'll be raising prices or whatever the date was. And so what's nice too, is that it actually kind of lights the fire under you a little bit to to make that year-end sale. But I thought that level of transparency was real. Third tactic, contribution margin. Create a digital product, parentheses, might be nothing. I want to throw this one over to Orchid. Uh, talk We're about all going to make it. <laughs> I'm just teasing. This is theoretically makes a ton of sense. Theoretically and logically makes a lot of sense of, you know, maybe launching a service in order to sell the product. So for instance, years ago, Gerber actually launched a service called Dottie. That was a subscription and pay for service, whereas effectively you're an infant nutritionist on call. And so, you know, you would buy the physical product, the infant formula. And then if you have any questions about sleep training, infant nutrition, you would pay a certain amount of money every month and then you would be have access to this. And so you can see where that alternate revenue um, stream comes from. But what gets really challenging is that usually um, if you're a product focused company and you're launching a digital good or a digital service, this, you know, that is something counter to what you are doing today. And so you've seen this um, in tech two times, once with um, Apple expanding from hardware, you know, pivoting into services, right? Putting in a lot of money for Apple TV and like, you know, custom uh, content and gaming and all that stuff. And it took them years and obviously a lot of money to do that, to do that well. And then on the other side, you had Google who was always focused on software and then really decided to watch their hardware in the Google phone. And that I don't know. I hear a lot of people use Androids. I've only met a couple of them, but you know, you see that you can, <laughs> well, clearly Andrew and I don't text because I don't know that I could handle the green bubble, but you know, I think creating a digital product makes sense. It can, and you know, I don't know if we want to get uh, Taylor on the NFT train. <laughs> that might take another hour, but what you're trying to do is find options to create alternate revenue streams and diversify your product portfolio but it comes at a cost. And we, 
Taylor's got a piece in conjunction with one of our growth guides, Luke Austin, uh, that's coming out really soon on e-commerce, NFTs, Web3, and really trying to make it as practical. We've got a partner in the mix on it that is the one, the one folks that now do that through Shopify Plus natively. So we've got the technology side of it we'll be digging through. So for, for as much as I'd like to let him have at it, let's, let's keep, let's keep trucking. And we're on the fifth <laughs> anti-fragile metric, which is organic versus paid traffic mix. And Orkin, I'm coming right back to you again with number one, and it almost feels like this shouldn't have to be said, but it should be said, capture email addresses aggressively. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's speaking to organic versus paid. I mean, what you're trying to do is create this flywheel effect of acquire your consumers, hopefully very efficiently on paid media channels, and then, you know, bring them to your own properties and then understanding who they are so that you can re-engage with them in a more efficient and effective way. And so when you only focus on acquisition and not on retention, and, you know, we're using emails in this sense, the and what you're doing is you effectively have a leaky bucket. And so you have to you know, throw money in the paid media fire every time that you want to drive sales. Whereas like it really should be, you know, creating that. Oh, I was going to say virtuous circle. We should edit that out. That's very dorky and very corporate. So we'll just say flywheel. I'll leave in my mispronunciation and we'll, and we'll link yours in. <laughs> It'll be a trade if anybody makes it this deep. Okay. Nobody knows your corporate terms though. So they sound really smart. So they're like, they made it there somehow. I don't like, I've never heard that phrase until you. It's so cringy. No, Vir the virtuous circle. It like sounds like who's the villain in G.I. Joe? That's your second Cobra, Cobra Kai. Yeah, Cobra Kai. It's like a very like Cobra Kai, like and his like sure. minions of the like the virtuous circle. <laughs> And the reason I, I'd say like, it shouldn't have to be said, but it should be said, God, we went through hundreds of, of the top D2C e-commerce sites over Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and the number of misaligned pop-up and email offers compared to what they had going on their site was heartbreaking. I can't remember who it was on Twitter, the Muddy Bites folks. I'll, I'll find, find it where they actually switched over like mid Black Friday to say, let's just make our pop-up the exact same as our offer and their conversion rates for email capture. It was some crazy like 4X number where they actually screenshotted what, what happened. And that's where it's that, that, that bit of oversight um, and why it, it, it does bear being said out loud, capture email addresses aggressively. Let me say a tiny thing here, which is that I think part of the reason people don't do this too is that it's really hard to feel the impact of it in real time. So if you move your pop-up capture conversion rate from 5% to 6%, that feels like nothing and you don't see it anywhere. You don't feel it anywhere, but that's 20% more email addresses. Like that's like a massive increase, you know? And, you know, if you go from 10 to 11, it's still 10% more. Like it's a, so I think that's, that's part of the reason people don't do this is that it's just like, it feels like this nothing little thing that gets lost in the background but it has massive compounding effects, especially if you're paying for a lot of traffic. Like it just makes everything you do more valuable. This sort of gets me to, and I'm gonna jump into the second point here, but if you wanna tee it up or not, but none of these are immediate gratification. That's the promise, pro, like Andrew's metaphor, right? Like the grow rice, go to the store and buy rice, right? Like this is grow, we're talking growing. Like, dude, we haven't used that metaphor in a long time. So you yeah. should give that, because it is a really good metaphor. We used to talk about this in terms of traffic, right? There's two ways to get traffic. You can pay for it or you can grow it. And so the metaphor is like rice. If you want rice, you can go to the store right now and get it, or you could grow it and have sort of a perpetual source of it, right? And so it's a, with organic traffic, you're trying to grow it to be a perpetually recurring thing for you, but that takes time. So one of the ways that you help yourself with a more latent value capture is that you measure it and create expectation around it. And that's one of the things I'll say, this is sort of a cliche measure what matters type, you know, trope here, but, but it's real it, with organic traffic, because it's small, it can get lost in the measurement, right? But one of the things that we do with email in particular, if you're going to capture all of these emails is each month for when our, with, with our clients, when we're using, when we're running email strategy for them, we have a goal for the amount of revenue we want to generate from the channel. And then we back into that number, which should be growing month over month by literally forecasting the anticipated revenue of every single email that gets sent. And then you know what happens on day one, when you send an email and you realize, oh shit, I thought I was going to get to 4,000. I only got 2,500 you now can begin to develop the strategy to compensate for that revenue. This happened to us yesterday with Bamboo Earth. We had an email that we went out. We had $4,000 planned from it. I think we got like two. So now we go, oh, 
we've got to make that delta up somewhere. But by being measuring and attentive and having expectation on everything that we send, we now have the ability to adjust the calendar, add another email, come up with a different offer to actually get to the goal versus like just at the end of the month going, did we get there? Yes or no. And this sort of like minutia will help in all these categories, track organic traffic by channel, track revenue by channel and watch it grow even slowly. And it can really give you that sense to keep going, that the encouragement to keep going. And we'll throw out a screenshot too. We'll jump over to the article. Um, we'll put a bunch of these things in the show notes as well uh, of exactly what that looks like. We've got an example here from Bamboo Earth. Uh, third tactic then is to identify and invest in existing communities with an emphasis on events, IRL. And yeah, I, a lot about, yeah, communities. Well, that's a buzzword. So events are part of it if that's part of the community. And the, the, I think the point here is that like we live often in a world of like, you know, trust the algorithm, broad targeting, Facebook, spray and pray kind of marketing for a lot of people. And that's right. That's how you should be doing your media buying. Like you should, I mean, you know, I can't remember the last time I seriously cared about interest targeting or something like that. But like what that hides is that marketing happens in communities and that especially for some products. And this is probably going to vary a little bit for product to product and brand to brand in terms of that. But I'll, I'll, I'll never not be influenced by having spent time trying for an early stage brand at Kalo, working with Taylor to by breaking into CrossFit and, and people probably heard me talk about this before, but what we did was we just, for every dollar we were spending, and this included Facebook at the time, there was much more of an interest targeting component, but like everything we did around production that we were creating, like the content that we were creating, influencers that we were reaching out to, events like the CrossFit games and, and like lead up events to the CrossFit games, even some direct media buys, like all of these things, what we had decided was that the, the, the community that we wanted to walk into was CrossFit and to be present and a real part of it. And the the way I, and that showed up in the revenue numbers in a really big way. And, and the way I will always like tell the end of how, how we knew that worked was that somebody got, two people got married at the CrossFit games and without us knowing anything about it or, or sponsoring it or something like that. So this super CrossFit couple, they got married with Kalo rings. And that was just like the moment for us of going, Oh man, we have like, of course they got married with Kalo rings. They're CrossFitters, right? Like, and it, that was the way that it had become in that community. That's true in different things. You know, we watched this happen a lot with Slick, where it was like over a long period of time, just continually trying to make sure that we were staying relevant and serious in the off-road space. And that's a that's a niche community that that can smell if you are inauthentic. And and so you know that started with bringing an influencer on early and and so on. So I think the the big piece here is if you have a if you have, and especially if you're not a big brand, you don't have limitless money to go try to target everyone all the time. And so um, thinking about marginal investments in influencers and things like that in the concentrated spaces so that you become endem endemic to it is a really good way to think about your marketing budget. And that should show up in things like ultimately some organic search from that group and, and some of those things like an increase in brand search. It's going to be very hard to measure. So I think the, the real like sort of super practical tip here is like figure out who it is that you want to reach and do everything you can to be present where those people hang out as much as possible. It's so not that that buzzword, that community content, commerce, community content and community that we're going to create a community around our brand and the rarity of that, the, it's the outliers are prominent, but they're so few and far between. I think the slight nuance is that it's not about building a community around your brand. Right. Is that your brand is tapping into existing communities who are going to embrace it and that it's relevant for. Get it. Somebody tweeted, somebody tweeted something recently about like, maybe it was Mandy or I don't remember, but it was like, I don't, I, I'm so tired of getting emails to say like, thanks for joining the whatever family. And it's, it was such a good comment. I just want to buy shoes. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I just want to buy shoes. And that's totally right. Like when brands try to make it like, we are the center and you come join our community instead of we are going to go be real in your community and support the things you care about. It's like building a community is also exhausting and time consuming. And most of the time you have like, you're selling five SKUs. Like, I'm sorry, but what kind of community are you going to build around there? Except for Peloton. Totally I guess right. Peloton technically has two SKUs. Right? It's the outliers that are so fun to point at. Yes, yes. All right, sixth, sixth anti-fragile metric, 60 day customer lifetime value. First tactic is optimize paid acquisition by your first product's LTV. Taylor, 
Yeah. So LTV, I like to say is much more of a genetic attribute. If you think of sort of the nature, nurture development of something like height, like I was never going to be six, six, I'm five, nine, and no amount of broccoli was going to get me there. It maybe got me from five, eight and a half to five, nine. And that's the kind of variation that you can make with LTV often is it, it's, it's so inherent to the product, which means that you should really analyze which of your products are most prone to most recurring purchase and just make sure that as you think about the cap consideration for all of your SKU set, likely some of them yield better LTV than others based on those inherent attributes. And so it's just about understanding based on which customers purchase. I'll give you sort of an example that's maybe not as intuitive to some people. Men's and women's apparel. We have a brand that we work with, Born Primitive. They sell men's uh, workout shorts and women's leggings. Well, which product do you think represents a better uh, LTV? Now that's obviously also about the consumer, which is another thing to consider in the LTV. But the point is we can't have the same cat consideration when selling men's shorts and women's leggings. The women's leggings have much better LTV. We have to take that into consideration and we have to merchandise our ad funnel. This is a phrase I like to use, meaning just think about which products we're selling at which CAC based on the values of the customers that come through that door. Age and gender, just to tag on, age and gender both can matter a lot there too. Okay. They, they can make a huge, huge difference. 45-year-old female, maybe very different than even a 25-year-old female in terms of how they interact with your brand and your products. I've, I've seen this in data in numerous places. So it's not just what they're buying, but who's buying it as well. That's right. Yeah. Those, yeah. Some uh, customers are better than others, and that's defined by a bunch of things, and that's what you should be targeting on the front end. That will make your LTV better. And that's what you want to unearth. Yes, 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 yes. Um, second tactic is all about, gosh, this is a big one, product development and diversification. Yeah. So it's really hard to create brands, make a lot of money in key moments, right? They make a lot of money in big moments during the, um, during their year that like, for example, black Friday, or maybe father's day or mother's day or whatever it is. And it's really hard to create very many of those moments as a brand without adding new products into the mix. And the thing that is that's important there is otherwise you have to just kind of rely on promotions a lot of times or something else tricky to kind of move around. So, so. So the first point here is that every time you release a product to a list you already have, let's say you followed Orchid's advice and you built a big email list. Well, what happens when people who love your brand and love your products who have bought one before then get your next product sent to them and released to them as a new thing on your list? Well, what's going to happen is some percentage of those people are going to buy that product for you and you will have not paid almost any money in advertising to acquire that customer. Now you may have paid some money in product development and some of those things. So there's another challenge there, but, but depending on how big your list is, of course, that gets amortized over a larger list and, and so on. So, um, so the creating those moments by having product development as part of it, your release schedule can create a lot of, of profit for your business further. It will also potentially be a, a product that applies or that interests a customer when your old products did not. And so Maybe, for example, like, you know, I think of Modern Fuel, our brand, right? Like 4 by 400 there's some people who were never going to buy a mechanical pencil for us, but they didn't really like our click pen. And so when you release a bolt action pen, they love high quality pens and pencils, but they really wanted a bolt action. And so now that bolt action is a product that attracts a kind of customer who loved your brand, but you didn't have the right product for them. And so it hits both of those things at the same time. And they actually may be on your list watching for when you're going to release that next product. And so if you can dial this in, and keep releasing great products, it can be a major pathway to LTV, especially for some brands where the genetic elements are five foot nine and they were never gonna be six six in terms of LTV, right? For that brand, the only pathway to LTV is product development, I think. Or well, that's not, that's probably overstated, but but the but the broad point is that like it is the way to do it, right? If I could go back and take FC goods back, what I would have done way, way earlier, way earlier is like put everything in my power into how do I release as many products as I can, as fast as I can, at as low of MOQs as possible to come back to an earlier conversation as well. And just test, test, test. How do I get more products to those customers' hands who got and loved their wallets and, and then just didn't have anything else to buy from us? So, so I don't know if it would have solved it, but it would have had a much better chance than me just trying to sell somebody a second wallet. A really exa good example is Shinola, right? Shinola, I don't think it's like a, a locally owned Detroit brand anymore, but they started out with, it was like a shoe cleaner or a shoe dye or shoe, and then they expanded into watches. And then now if you go on their site, they've got bags, they've done, you know, furniture collaborations with CB2. So, you know, at a certain point, once you buy into the brand, it's like, well, give me and offer me more opportunities to buy into the lifestyle or just to buy more from you.
third tactic, still on, on the product side of things, diversified product mix with a complementary CPG. Uh, and I don't necessarily mean, you know, going to make up, but something that's consumable. That's how I'm using that, that phrase CPG right now. Orchid. Oh, uh, using yeah. consumable. Interesting. Consumable, okay. Yeah. No, it's consumer packaged goods, but not like food and bev consumable. So we we can do a couple of examples. So I think a good example of diversifying your product mix with something that's complimentary um, would be Nespresso, right? You're selling the machine for hundreds of dollars, and then you also sell the capsules and you can, you know, engage the consumer into a subscription package for the capsules. So not only are they upfront spending, you know, one to three to $400, now they're spending what, like $30, $40 a month repeatedly. Um, with you on buying capsules that they could only use in that machine. Um, so if we want to talk about consumables, there's an example there. But you also have, I think it was Dollar Shave Club. So obviously they were selling razors, but then they also sold a complimentary, I think it was like a shave butter, right? And so what you're trying to do is bundle these like adjacent products to make a better experience to also cut down on the number of choices and decisions and actions that a consumer needs to take to have that optimal experience. So for example, New Face, right? So microcurrent skincare device. I turned 40 this year, so I just bought one. It's great, plugging it. But but they also, so you're buying a device and they range from, you know, uh, like $150 all the way to like $400, right? You're buying a one-time device with different attachments, but we're also buying is the gel. Um, that you put on your face to run, you know, the device over while you're doing your face. And so again, you know, although I'm only buying one of the devices, what I'm coming back at, you know, time and again to purchase is this skincare product as well. Not consumable. I do not recommend that you eat that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. One of the things too, I, I really believe that subscription is one of the only ways to meaningfully alter LTV in a really dramatic fashion. It's the most, it, it's the most powerful form still of purchasing. There's people who sort of have a disdain for the purchase mechanism. And I think a lot of brands have tried to force it where maybe it wasn't necessary. But another great example is a client of ours, Coast, that sells, you know, like headlamps um, and things like that. And it, at first they didn't have any, you know what needs a subscription of headlamps, but you know what they do need a subscription of the batteries that go in the headlamps, right? And so they were able to create a recurring revenue stream by adding what was a, a, functionally a commodity product that most people wouldn't think that, it's not like they sold branded batteries. Like it's just, a, it's a way to give the consumer to work its point, the experience they need to have the product. And you understand the use cases and the recurring schedules in which they might need to purchase them. And you can offer them value in a way that leads to a residual revenue stream. When I bought my, my Coast flashlight and lamp, it was, the, the upsell process was incredibly natural. So was the text message follow-ups after that in case I wanted to subscribe to the batteries because I didn't, I just purchased them. But there was this natural, I'm buying this dope flashlight. That's, that's like a little bit better than any flashlight I've ever bought before. Not insane, but it was just like, the, it was a, it felt good. And now she'll be like, yeah. And the batteries that are going in this are something special too. Like, so there was this like, it just felt good uh, on my end as a consumer when I went through that process. All I think about with headlamps <laughs> is when I had my, when we had, a, when I had my, whoa, if my, my, <laughs> when we had our twins, my wife would keep a headlamp by her nightstand to breastfeed at night. And so I just have this like very vivid memory of like my wife with our twins breastfeeding with a headlamp on. And that's like my lonely memory, but it sticks in my head for sure. <laughs> Seven, and finally, seventh and finally is Number of distribution channels. First tactic on top of this is do not ignore, reject, or sleep on Amazon. Andrew. Amazon, really big, good business. Lots of people shop there. I've heard of look, them. Yeah, look, I understand why people are hesitant about Amazon, particularly when you hear the absolute nightmare, business-destroying horror stories of people who are getting knocked off by their manufacturer or whatever. And I get that, but that is a small, tiny little percentage. It is, you have to be able to calculate that risk in terms of what is happening there. Like you are not Nike. Don't compare yourself to Nike. You don't control your customers' purchasing habits and brand loyalty like Nike does. And so instead of trying to think like, how do I make absolutely certain that I get every last purchase on my website and nowhere else in the world? Instead, here's a different idea. Go where your customers are. And they are on Amazon. Like it is 50% of all purchase volume on the internet or whatever it is, you know, like, I don't know what the number is, but it's some stupid, ridiculous number. And, and so instead of being scared of it, like go embrace it, 
have best practices and tactics there, use their system, use it as a channel where you can grow and make it a part of building a great business, especially if you're e-com first. One thing I will tell you for sure is happening, for sure, 100% is happening, is that people are seeing your ad, clicking on it, looking at your business on your website, bouncing over to Amazon. And if you're not there, they are not buying your product. You're losing sales because of that. And it's hard to measure that, but, but those Amazon sales are not all cannibalizing your sales. There are marginal sales happening on Amazon. I've looked at it in numbers over and over again before Slick Products was ever using, spending a dollar on Amazon ads. Before they were spending a dollar, there were sales growing there. And, and that was all coming from, that was all coming from the tail end of ads and other growth and name recognition and you know branded search volume increasing. Get on Amazon, get your products up there, be where your customers are, grab the purchases. Don't be, it's going to be okay. Second tactic is in a lot of ways building off of that and these, these extensions, these different marketplaces, but I want to go even further out than that to expand into wholesale and retail. And you're probably the best person to speak to this. Well, we've said that the word that we're using too often is diversification, but I think that's exceptionally true when we're talking about anti-fragility, right? Because what you're, it's kind of like a stock portfolio, or if you have a Robinhood account and a Coinbase account, I do not check my Coinbase account anymore, but <laughs> yeah, what you're trying to do is, you know, place lots of different bets and diversify like your different channels. And so when we talk about wholesale and retail, that's actually a really nice way to lower your CACs, right? By being where the people that feels like a line from Little Mermaid. But, you know, the reality is that like when, when you're a brand, like you're probably not spending enough money um, or you're not at a stage where you have national household, you know, recall of your brand. I mean, you're not spending like $60 million annually on paid media. And so you still have to find ways um, for the right people to, ex you know, be able to encounter and engage with your product also in the physical world because we don't all entirely live in the metaverse yet. And so when you look at wholesale and retail, I mean, yes, your margins might not be as good, but you're going to have large volume orders. Um, you're going to, you know, there are trade-offs. You're not going to have as much access to sales data and to consumer data than you do with their DDC channels. But, you know, all of this isn't an or, it's an and. And so to Andrew's previous point about Amazon as well, I mean, there are absolutely fears because you're not, you don't have that same level of control and scrutiny that you have over your own channels as you do as someone else's channel. But what you're trying to do is, you know, pull all those things together. And so this is related to, I think, a tweet I saw last night, not only, you know, Taylor's fiery one where he got in a fight on the internet, but it was about like the popularity of like custom in-house, like mixed media modeling. And I do think that that's on the rise because you've got a lot of D2C and e-commerce businesses who are now expanding into omni-channel and they're understanding that they're not going to be able to, you know, make the data-driven decisions that they were able to before because they're not getting that real-time data feedback back. Jimmy Schmidt is another one who constantly, of Schmidt's Naturals, constantly comes back to this idea of saying yes, yes and, to the different channels. And, and this organic growth through things like her roots in farmer's markets, then out to the independent retailers, then out into the main, like all the way up to like the, the Costco pictures, you know, back from her, her Instagram account, the first time seeing that there. And it's just this, how you get into these is so much of a, a posture and, and a positioning uh, and an openness and an aggressively of what, what you choose to pursue. Third tactic, pursue large orders via corporate gifting. Taylor. So yeah, I, I think of this as an alternative direct channel. Okay. So this, I think sometimes the other ones are sort of like considered alternatives to direct, but I think this is an alternative within direct is what I'm trying to say there. That's better phrasing. There are different mechanisms by which you can sell to people, even through your website. And I think sometimes if your product fits the category, not all of them do, but something like modern fuel and FC goods were examples of this, where we have found ways to frame them as great corporate gifts. Uh, if there's customization elements, if there's a food element to it, there's great ways to set up your product to build a funnel. It can be, you know, a subset in your header that is corporate gifting that allows people to bulk purchase or puts them in contact with a salesperson. And you can actually run acquisition funnels against the premise. And you can actually pursue, especially at various seasons, right? Before the holidays, around, you know, other moments of the year where there's key opportunities for gifting and it's very obvious. This can be a way to drive a meaningful amount of business. And if you can get yourself instilled into that culture, there are entire companies that are massively built entirely on the premise of corporate gifting. Like, and on that note, one of the fun ones that I'll, I'll use as an example, because 
this is something in the process of negotiating with suppliers. One of the hard things to do is to build relationships overseas, but there's uh, a website that I heard uh, Shane Purry talking about on my first million called giftbasketoverseas.com. And this is a way to like make very easy sending gifts to your suppliers in uh, China, which is a very technical, difficultly difficult process for because of the payments and commerce infrastructures there that can be challenging. But that entire business, it's like this tiny, tiny sub niche built around exclusively this premise. So the question is, could your product possibly fit into what is a very large industry? A similar one is like at Kalo, we, we were able to sell into like OSHA, like, like product safety or office safety or manufacturing line assembly safety. If you can get into those, you know, government sales or another, these channels that are alternative to pure play wholesale often are hugely, hugely uh, valuable if you can. Because diversification, right? It, it is, it is it's such a hot, hot topic. Other meaningful, noteworthy marketplaces, avenues, and if you want to call attention to before we wrap this thing up. Do we want to talk about fair? Yeah. <laughs> All right, kick it up. That was a, that was a really good leading the witness because we were chatting about this before we hit record and had a really rich conversation around it. Yeah, I mean, we were this kind of ties into the concept of curation as a service, right? Where you have all these independent D2C brands where, you know, you're hearing about them in a variety of ways, a bit scattershot on Facebook and Instagram. Maybe, you know, they ran a sweepstakes where they had some partner brands with someone that you shop with and you're like, cool, like aesthetically, these look the same, like I'll discover it this way. And, and this actually kind of reminds me of like the great unbundling of cable, right? Where everybody's like, I don't know, my cable service is like too expensive. It's like a hundred dollars a month. Great. We're going to unbundle it. And then I have more choice and then I get to pick my own. Well, now we all have like 15 subscriptions, probably paying $200 a month instead. And so it's very similar here where it was like, Hey, here's this rejection against like big box retail or large retailers where they're carrying like. 200 plus brands in their store at any given time. And now I'm going to, you know, buy independent, but it takes a lot of time and effort to shop individually those brands. So we are seeing as marketplaces like FAIR, which is wholesale as well, or even what Shopify's app is aspiring to be is a way to curate those brands and make discovery much easier again. Yeah, FAIR, if you, especially if you're a smaller brand and the idea of building relationships with buyers at large wholesalers is difficult for you, FAIR is solving a really unique problem, which is allowing small independent retailers and even large retailers the ability to discover products and purchase them directly from you as a wholesaler. So I would recommend, especially early on as a business, if, if relationships are hard or the idea of you don't have an internal salesperson, FAIR is a great way to leverage that. <clears throat> Another one I'll shout out just because uh, disclaimer, we're an investor, but the fascination is sort of taking an exercise in what Orchid is describing, which is a, an attempt to curate, you know, with a lens of an understanding of the community and what their customers would want, all the coolest D2C products and allow customers to shop them in one place. And so fascination.com is another example of what she's describing in this sort of curated marketplace that are popping up and allow you another point of, to be discovered as a brand. We'll link to all that in the show notes. And in the article itself, that'll be linked in the show notes or in the YouTube description. I want to say one other thing about that. And it's simpler than what we just said, which is get on fair. It's that simple. Just go get on fair. Just go do it. It's so easy because they're in the ad people, ad brands to, to our marketplace to make it more valuable. It's so easy. They incentivize it big time. Just go get on fair. There'll be a link to that to do it directly. Uh, Big, big thank you around the table, the squares, or can where can the people find you if they're upset about something you said? How can they get a hold of you? Well, I if they're upset, <laughs> there's nothing. But no, I mean, I'm on Twitter. Um, so just add Orchid Bertelson. That real person I meant to say that to was Tate. <laughs> yeah, if, 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 you need to get in, if you're upset and you get in touch with me, it's Orchid at Common Thread. <laughs> and you think he's joking, you think? <laughs> Andrew, I'm going to hand it back over to you, the the rightful host and holder of the e-commerce playbook podcast, because uh, you dropped a fantastic note there at the end of our our doc that we put together for this that we'll pull all the additional tactics from. We didn't even have time to cover. Well, you want to close this out with that one last big picture capper that you described. Yeah. So you know we we're joking about this earlier, but I'm unemployed, and that has allowed me to take a moment of reflection on my time as CEO at 4x400. And as we're having this conversation, 
I'm planning on maybe doing some some more content about this too, actually. But I have been thinking about things I've done well and things I did poorly. And one of the mistakes that I made at 4x400 that I think is like crystal clear to me now is that I just didn't have a strong enough central guiding principle that absolutely everything else was laddering up to. And what I actually think underneath the surface of all of this is going to help you prioritize. I mean, the problem with tactics, things like this that we are just doing is that there's too much, like if you just try and follow everything we just told you, it's all good advice. Honestly, I listened to all of it. It was all good advice, especially the stuff I said. It was really smart. No, I'm kidding. But but the but the problem is, and I knew a lot of that during my time as Forever 100, but still made a lot of those mistakes that we just told you not to make. The problem is it's really hard to prioritize and to build a team around prioritizing the right things if you don't give them one crystal clear central thing that we are absolutely all going after. And I would say that thing probably in your business should be profit or even better free cash flows. And and so so as a tactic to think about making your business more anti-fragile, do this. Come up with a central goal around free cash flow and do everything you can. And I mean everything you can in your management, in your KPIs, in your in your inventory ordering, in your Facebook ad spend, everything you can should be able to answer the question, how does this create free cash flow in my business? If you can do that effectively, and it's not easy, actually identifying it as its own challenge, but then actually implementing it is hard too. But if you can do that, you will be guided through a lot of these different things. I, I, that was a mistake that I made. I did not do that very well. And if I could, if that would be one of those things where if I could go back, I would, I would go and from day one, I, I would have spent my first month as CEO, making sure I was crystal clear about that. And then figuring out how to drill that down through the organization absolutely as best as I possibly can. And then spent every month after that trying to keep that going. Mm. Thanks so much for listening today. Thanks especially to Aaron Orendorf. If you're still here, just say you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, I didn't say this in the intro. I didn't want to distract you, but I thought your hello and welcome that you started the show with nicely mimicked my hello and welcome. And I Did it sound that. familiar? I hope so. It felt like uh, it felt like it was a cover. It was a cover I'm of my hello fan. and welcome. I'm a real fan. <laughs> I know you are. But thanks for hosting today. This was actually super fun um, and super fun to like dive into all this stuff and, and put it all together. I think incredibly helpful, helpful to me to sort through all these things. So, hey, thanks again, as always, for listening. Rate us, review us, send this to somebody who needs to build an anti-fragile business or needs to build a more anti-fragile business. And, and that would be the best way you can say thank you for this content to us. And uh, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Andrew J. Ferris. I'd love to talk to you about anything that's happening in your business. Just uh, tweet at me or DM me or whatever. And uh, Aaron, we're can people find you at Aaron Orndorf. I'm on the Twitters and uh, or just Google most handsome man in, in Oregon. <laughs> I didn't know you could do that, but that makes it makes a lot of sense actually. So, all right. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. <laughs>